Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back to finish our coverage of the cremation fields, 2500 BC by Alan Moore. This is going to be our discussion episode. Last episode was our recap episode. There's a lot to discuss here. Yeah. Before we get into it, though, I I just want to let people know that this is actually the first story that we have recorded uh, over uh, a long hiatus. We took many months away from the microphones together, and now we are back. And in the meantime, we had our end of the year show, our year in review show here on Elder Sign, and we got a ton of commissions around that time. I mean, just like so many commissions at the end of last year. <laughs> this is our first time recording since we got those commissions. And so we just want to pause here and say thank you so much for that support to the, the listeners who have, have commissioned those episodes. Just thank you so, so much. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm really looking forward to this year's worth of recording uh, our long hiatus was due to a lot of uh, personal transitions and and life-changing stuff we've gone through. We're both really glad to be back to the mic, and we are exceptionally glad to have your support as listeners. But uh, we're not here to talk about our lives, Glenn. We're here to talk about this story. So let's discuss the cremation fields. Right. So I want to start actually by talking about the life of the the narrator uh, here. I w- think maybe a way that we could get into thinking about this character and what she is up to in this world is to think about what actually happens on the next page, right? The story ends with her plans coming to to nothing here, the murder that she commits in the the very opening of the story coming to nothing. She's standing in a field of ash. But you know, she still has her life. She's still alive, right? Even though Olin figured her out, he didn't rat her out, at least not that we're aware of. And it seems like she might have some options. So the the question I want to start with, Brandon, is what do you think that she does next, right? What's the, the sequel to this story? Uh, I think she gets run down and killed. That That's my sense. I mean, I, I don't know what else to make of Tunney's uh, kind of gesturing at the neck uh, to make me think that Herna might have let the cat out of the bag or something like that. Uh, And maybe the townspeople, the village folk know that uh, she's a murderer and they're either going to run her out of town or or she's going to decorate the torso garden. Uh, Interesting. I did not have the sense that anyone other than Olin has this information. Uh, I don't think there was enough time for anyone else in the village to have found out, right? Because she goes straight from having handed all in those beads to look for Tunny. And so I don't know that Tunny could have gotten that information, you know, ahead of her. I mean, maybe he could, but I don't think so. So it felt to me like she's gotten away with it. She just hasn't gotten the prize that she wanted. And I wondered if she was going to you know, try to stay in this village in some way, if she would try to take Olin's position, even though she doesn't know anything about it, doesn't know what to do, uh, if she would still try to do that, or if she was going to just carry on with whatever she had been doing before this opportunity, this murder and assume someone else's identity opportunity uh, kind of fell in her lap on the road. Yeah, I guess the the thing that really confuses me or, or, or shocks me on some level about this ending here is, is this Tunny asking the question to Usin. He says, uh, who does that one about your throat when they're talking about tattoos? And she doesn't know what he's talking about. Nobody knows what they're talking about. Uh, Usin can't figure it out. But my sense is that you know a ton of people in the village saw the marks around the dead girl's neck uh, 
uh, the real Usain, and now there are marks, the marks around the imposter's neck. And so just the way the story kind of functions with sympathetic magic made me feel as though somebody was going to put this together. They were going to be right for the wrong reasons and she was going to be found out and, and killed or something. I don't know. The point is she'll never get the treasure or the other way of reading the story for me um, isn't even that she escapes necessarily or takes on the role of the cunning man. It's that the treasure is really the, the bodies of the past cunning men and they're all in a catacomb somewhere. So I don't know. Yeah. I, she's not going to come out on top no matter what happens. Right. I mean, that was going to be one of my questions here is, was there <laughs> even any treasure? Because I'm I'm with you. I don't think that there was some treasure, like, you know, like some dragon lair worth of like gold coins or something ridiculous <laughs> right. like that under this village. The treasure is the ancestors, right? One of the things that is, is happening here is that Moore is showing us this Stone Age society, this prehistoric society here in England that uh, is really interested in inhumation, that's really interested in uh, burying people, and in fact has really elaborate structures for this. And archaeologically, this is this is a real thing. And you can go to lots of different um, uh, sort of museums, right, of this, where you can go to these excavation sites, uh, pay a few pounds, and 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 go through these sites, take some tours to some great exhibits. And one of the things that you'll see immediately, right, is that this these were a people this was a culture that really was interested in venerating its dead and had these uh, mass graves that are called uh, long barrows although there are other types of them as well where you would bury generations and generations of people and and sometimes with goods but not anything that i think would be described as a, a treasure that you could really loot and run off with that the treasure here the the thing that olin is the keeper of is the the past the the this community's past this community's memory he's the cunning man he's, he's a priest who presides over rituals but he's also the lore master right he's the He's the cultural memory of this of this village. He's got all these traditions handed down from cunning man to cunning man, and that's part of his job. Part of his job, presumably, actually, is to tend to these burials, tend to these burial sites as well. And that's what he's got the map of on his body is who's buried where, or you know where the entrances are to some of these that are are so old that uh, they're not you know sort of in use anymore, and that sort of thing. That was that was definitely my sense of what the treasure was here. Absolutely. And all of that is really made clear in the conversation that Usin has with Gurn, where he basically says as much, you know, my father crawls around underground and talks to dead people. Uh, the treasures that are buried there are the secrets of his craft, things along those lines that really strongly suggest that uh, this is no a dragon's lair, as you point out, as you say, Glenn, uh, but really the the story of the people of the village. And that's what she needs to learn. That's the real treasure. Right. And and this is something that I came to the story with. I mean, certainly I, I am someone who's quite interested in the past. Also, I have done a lot of hiking around in Northern England and Scotland, places where actually you can go to these types of museums. And so I've been to a lot of them. I mean, you can go to them in Southern England as well, where I've been to some of them too. And so it actually took me a while just reading the story, Brandon, to even realize that the narrator might not actually realize that that's what the treasure is, because that was kind of a default setting that I was coming to it with. And so I have a question that you might think is a dumb question because the answer is rather obvious, but 
the question is, is this, what was the narrator actually attempting to accomplish in this village? Was she looking for this treasure so that she could steal it and run off? Do you think, is that what she was trying to do? So that's my sense, right? Is that she wanted to get something of actual value that she could trade for land and start her own village. But I I don't understand that reasoning because if she were to buy something from a landholder and start a village there, then that would probably create an occasion for war, (laughs) like conflict or something. And if, if that's going to happen, why not just like, I don't know, try to gather a band around you and say you're their queen and, 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 uh, attack somewhat, take over another person's village. I don't understand anything about Usain's reasoning. I think she's she's kind of just thinking one step ahead. And I don't think she'd ever really be able to purchase land, which is her plan in order to become a queen. I think she's just thinking, how can I get the next score? Um, and she's grave robbed before we see. But yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I guess that's that's what we're supposed to get as readers is that she wants to get the treasure and get out of town. Well, that, that is not what I thought was going on. I think that you're right. But I read the whole story twice, actually, without thinking that that's what she was interested in. It just didn't occur to me at all that she was thinking she was going to like take a bunch of pots like or something and, <laughs> right. and, and like use them to buy food or clothes or whatever she might need or land, I guess, somehow. That just didn't occur to me. I read the story two times through operating on the assumption that what she's trying to do here is actually can find a place to live, that she's going to learn the the knowledge from this cunning man and just be the cunning man. She's just going to be the, the next cunning person in this village because it's a pretty good gig. Like you've got wealth here. You don't do you know any kind of agricultural labor, but you're well cared for, right? Your material needs are very well met and you're respected in this community and so on. And so that's really what I thought she was doing. So for me, this really was like the talented Mr. Ripley, just like the whole way through. But I I think that you are right. I don't think that's what she was trying to do. It's hard to really understand also, like just what treasure means, which I mean, that's kind of what we've been talking about. Um, Because we know we're just like kind of right at the start of this Bronze Age period or, or where metalworking is coming into being and like there are mines and stuff. Um, but, and more focuses on what we think of as treasure, right? Like trinkets, ornamental pieces, rings, all this sort of stuff comes up, but there's like no minted coins, right? <laughs> there, there's nothing like that that she's going to find and then trade for land. So to me, there's a, a like a kind of cognitive dissonance as a reader when I think about what more focuses on and then what he's thinking that Usain is going to haul off and trade for land to become a, a queen of her own village, you know? Right. I mean, certainly there would be things that that people would use as as trade. You're you're right, not metal coins, uh, but other types of of goods that people would use as as trade or you know as a type of currency in order to facilitate trade that she could get. I mean, she could certainly get some of those things. Some of those things would be buried with the dead. That's that's how we have them. That's how archaeologists uh, find them, right? right? right. And uh, so you know that could happen. But I don't think it's going to be a kind of fortune 
right? And so there's a, a murder here and a lot of work going into something that she could really probably only get away with for a little while, right? I mean, I think she would have to stick around in this village for a while and uh, start kind of bringing goods out of the graves and bringing them out of the village, like stashing them somewhere and then make a run for it. But I think she would only be able to make a, you know, one run for it. So it would still only be able to be kind of one backpack load of stuff, which presumably, you know, could get you a good amount of material goods out in the world, you know, a long time's worth of food, you know, a few months or something like that, some better clothes, you know, from a village, uh, something like that. But I, I don't think it's a very good plan. It's, in fact, I think it's a pretty bad plan. It's a terrible plan. <laughs> it's a really bad plan. And that's why I, I think, you know, in reading this story, I just, there was some like level of disconnect that I felt. And I think it's because uh, Moore never really focuses on the definition of treasure, though he hints at it's not what we think it is. Uh, it's also not what Usin thinks it is. But Usin is thinking about uh, metalwork, about you know, rings people wear that she steals from a dead body about the fancy beads, stuff like that. So as readers, we're kind of the highlight is on the baubles, which is what we think of when, you know, we see Aladdin and stuff like that. Right. You know, the, <laughs> so it's just, it, to me, that there's like the kind of the core uh, dissonant tone of the story was that that kind of mixture of images that I never really knew what to do with. Well, let's switch now to talking about the supernatural elements in this story, because this is really, I guess, going to be tugging on the, the thread here of what's going on with Usin's neck. But before we get to that question, I just want to actually catalog some of the supernatural incidents that we get in the story. So for, for one, as we, we mentioned in the recap, Olin claims to have a sympathetic magic relationship with the village in which whatever happens to it happens to him. And some examples that we get of this are that he has blood in his stool when there's an incident at the bridge, when there's a fire his skin burns. And also he tells us that he developed erectile dysfunction when uh, a forest was chopped down. But it's a question, right? A question raised even in the story by the narrator herself of whether or not Olin really has this sympathetic magic relationship with the village or, you know, if he's a con man. And I, I wonder what you think, Brandon. Is there real magic? Is there really supernatural stuff happening in the story or is he a con man? I don't think there's any supernatural stuff happening in this story. Um, maybe in the dreams, there's some really great imagery with the dogs and the spirit dogs. And Usin is always dreaming of this black dog. And so to me, that's either, you know, like a literary technique of uh, Morris use of symbolism, or he's indicating that there is something real in the, in the dream world of this uh, hi history of this, deep past. Um, but in the village, I don't think the cutting man really uh, is experiencing <laughs> those things. I think he he kind of says them in hindsight, uh, but he's no less cunning for figuring out what to say and, and to remember all of the ways in which the, you know, the village is his body. That's my feeling as well. And we talked about this when we covered the first chapter, Hobbs Hogg as well. Yeah, what, Is there really anything supernatural going on in this story or not? And we were kind of lukewarm, I think, on on, on that. And this definitely seems like, you know, now that we're two stories into this, uh, this story cycle here, that more is really building up a world in which there are beliefs in the supernatural, but maybe not 
all that much actual supernatural happening here. The one thing that really threw me, though, is this business with Osin's neck, because I felt like um, this was straight out of Macbeth here, right? When Tony points at Osin's neck and and you know says, what's, what's happening there? This, to me, felt like her neck was now manifesting a type of wound or a scar or something, the, the type of wound that she gave to the actual Osin, the narrator gave to the actual Osin. I thought that maybe that's what was happening there with that though though you think that it was just a, i guess a symbol a, a signal right that they were going to have to execute her uh, tonight or something like that yeah not just a, a symbol i i actually had a, a slightly different read than you did which i didn't bring up in the recap episode because we read at the end of the story and i figured we'd get to this but i felt more that um that olin saw when she when usin took off the necklace was the the copper marks, and that is what led him to solve the crime. You you didn't think that the that the lack of you thought that the, it was the lack of copper marks that gave her away, but I I kind of read it in the sympathetic magic sense where the fact that she had the marks there uh, and they were the same as the dead girl allowed Olin to make some sort of connection, and then that's what Tani saw as well. Um, but that. You know that takes care of the supernatural question, I suppose. But that wasn't your sense of of what happened at all. No, I mean I think that's really interesting, and I think that that's probably right because it certainly then incorporates all of the uh, material that we get in the story, right? The the business with what is on her neck. There is an actual very physical mark, a green mark from the beads, but. I actually don't think that that then proves that she killed this girl, right? It just proves that- No, of course not, <laughs> you know, right? You know? <laughs> but that's the thing is that, 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 that I feel like Moore has just like, and we talked about this in the first chapter, just like absolutely no respect for people from the past. And there's this sense then that they're right, but it's for the wrong reasons. They're actually stupid for what they believe and kind of, uh, we can laugh at that a little bit, but that doesn't mean they don't, you know, the broken clock doesn't strike 12 uh, twice a day. You know what I mean? Right. I guess that's true. Yeah. Because if, you know, all that proves otherwise, once you realize, oh, yes, anyone who wears this, you know, wears copper is going to have a green mark on their skin from wearing copper. So when you see, see that this body has this mark on it, all that you can know then is that this person used to wear some copper around her neck and doesn't now. And so presumably whoever killed her took the the copper. But if it only takes a few days to get that copper stain, that green mark on your neck... That doesn't prove that it, it doesn't in any way prove that these two incidents are related to each other, right? But it definitely proves, you know, but if there is no mark there, then that definitely proves that Osin has not actually had possession of these copper beads as long as she claims to have had them. And so that's a lie that she's now caught in that would prove something. I, I, you know, I, I don't yeah, know. The story doesn't require like, a jury, but. <laughs> yeah, I actually like your reading a lot more, which is why I didn't challenge you on it in the recap episode, because to me, it's it's much more intelligent than mine. <laughs> yeah, well, right. But I think that you're right. I, I think you're right because it's the thing that makes sense of this business with the neck, which I was really struggling with. So, okay. Well, that that mystery then is is solved, even if it makes me feel like Olin is less Sherlock Holmesian than I than I, than I, than I did reading this story. Yeah. But, I mean, all he's doing is going around the body and saying, uh, the thumb is missing and the ear is missing and there's a knife wound at the throat. The knife did all the work. You know, it's not, it's, it's written. Well, more is a really compelling in the way he presents the, uh, the kind of Sherlock Holmes thing out of, of the, the murder. Um, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's stuff I think m- most people could just figure out, uh, too. 
Well, there are a few other supernatural things I want to talk about before we move on to talking about the the world that Moore builds here. And and really, all I want to do here is check back in with the first story, Hobbs Hogg, and think about the supernatural elements that we saw there that that either aren't present in this story or that are present but only a little bit. And present but only a little bit is the uh, black dogs, the kind of spiritual black dogs, the the uh, bar guests or, or bar geists of uh, English folklore that we had present in a, a fairly big, uh, significant way in Hobbes Hogg. We do get them here, but uh, only as kind of a, a off-the-cuff kind of throwaway line that one of the one part of the burial rituals of the village is to do something to protect bodies from the encroachments of these black dogs. But then something that's totally missing, an element that's totally missing from Hobbs Hogg here, is any mention of Urks, who were these uh, these people, these ancient people who lived in in caves that are a big part of Hobbs Hogg, but they're the memory of them seems to be totally gone by this point. There is one mention of them, I will say. The reference would have escaped me had you not just brought it up because I was puzzled <laughs> in rereading this story why it's here. But on uh, page 71, Olin is uh, being taken around by Usin and says that we have our Urkin tracks beneath the soil. And this is somehow something to do with the... Um, the dead and the treasure. This is a paragraph that's caught up with uh, dog dreams, which are sort of omens of death we see in the story. So yeah, it's mentioned, but it's all much lighter. It's yeah, you're right to point out here, Glenn, that uh, a lot of this culture has dissipated, I guess, over the intervening 2000 years, though some of it does remain. Oh yeah, interesting. I I had totally missed that even though that paragraph there, I mean that conversation, this is really where we we as readers can glean that what Olin is talking about as treasure is not what Usin is dreaming about, daydreaming about as treasure. This is a really important paragraph, but yeah, I missed this Urkentracks business here. So yeah, I'm glad that you noticed that because this is something that I think, I mean, I just have this feeling that one of the things that Moore is up to in this book is that he's going to trace these elements through the like 6,000 year history of Northampton to see how these these stories you know change through time, how their their reception changes from uh, culture to culture and, and over the, the century and millennia. And so then I was thrown for it when I didn't see that there was any any mention here. But but that's you're right, that's it. It's just that one word, the Urken track, uh, which is part of the the tunnels, I guess, underneath the village, which then that is interesting because it means that Olin thinks that some of the the network of tunnels connecting these uh burial mounds, these barrows, are even older than their community and were made by non-human sentient creatures. Yeah, which, you know, we know there were tons of back then. Right. Uh, or at least before <laughs> then. I mean, they're, you know, not, not, not 2500 BC, so to speak, but you know, there have been more than one species of, of humanoid creatures walking this planet at the same time. <laughs> 
Right. And that's something we talked a lot about in Hop's Hog was sort of thinking about, you know, the memory of like Neanderthals and that sort of thing. And of course, you know, as we get to do more uh, Arthur Mackin stories and, and really his bigger stories, uh, which of course we'll probably end up having to do over on, on Patreon because some of them are actually quite long and will require so many episodes. But as we get into that material, we'll start to see really, you know, the rich tradition of dealing with exactly that sort of thing in weird fiction. But that will have to be for another time. And uh, I guess let's, uh, let's switch gears here now. Brandon, to talk about the world that uh, that Alan Moore envisions here, because although you know this is a story that is taking place in the real world, it's taking place in a, a period of the past that we have uh, very limited uh, ability to access, very limited ability to recover, and so Moore is creating here a fantasy world, even if he is basing it on, uh, you know, some things he's been able to read in scholarly publications and uh, museum exhibits and so on. And I think generally doing a good job of that. Uh, it's still a world that he's building out himself. So I want to talk about that. And of course, we will also compare it to what archaeologists know about this period uh, now at this point. But let's start with religion. This is a story that is very much about religion here. And we get two different religions in the story. And so I think, Brandon, just to start here, I would just like to actually catalog these two different religions, Olin's religion and Herna's religion. That's what I'm going to call them because they don't actually get any names. <laughs> and I want to look at the practices for each and the, the beliefs for each. So let's just start. I'll try to catalog some of the religious practices that we see among Olin's religion, the religion of the village, the ancestral religion of this village. So the big the big religious practice that we see here is this pig burning. And we know that this is a rite at the end of harvest, that uh, this is a story taking place at the close of, of autumn. And we even get uh, some lines here, really cool speech from Olin, where he says, the leaves fall dead at news of winter. Now is the sleep of lizards. Now the shortening of days. The crop is in, the shed is full. Now we must offer thanks. And so this pig burning ritual here. This is actually a type of Thanksgiving celebration. And Olin presides over this part of the ritual. He's the one doing the speaking there. But this speech, this is not actually the ritual. That's going to be tomorrow night. And the ritual is the burning of a pig, right? Uh, tomorrow during the day, they will stack the wood for the fire. Then they're going to find the pig that they will burn. And then the next night, they will actually burn that pig. And We'll talk a little bit more about the beliefs of that in, in just a minute, but that's the big practice that we see in this religion. It's the only glimpse that we get of, uh, of a type of holiday, a type of festival for this religion, though presumably there are going to be lots of them. That's one of the big things religions do. And then the other practice that really matters, and maybe the one that matters the most here actually, is that uh, what they do with their dead is to bury them, right? This is a, a culture, this is a religion that practices inhumation here. But Really, I think we need to zoom in on this pig business, right? Because this is the thing that's going back, as you said in the recap, to the first story. So we can start thinking about the beliefs that this religion has. And the biggest one that we see is this cultural tradition of the first story. And the way that this is remembered, the way this is explained by Olin here in the story is that gods below the dirt uh, spoke to Hob, who was the cunning man of the village, and they tell him to offer his son in thanks for the soil being good. Uh, offer his son here, of course, means make a human sacrifice, right? So Hob gets ready to do this, but just then, right, right before Hob is about to kill his son, the gods stop him. And uh, here's what Olin says. We are so pleased, the gods say, that we do spare your child. 
Look, yonder is a pig caught in the mud. Take down your son from off the fire, and let us change the pig into a boy that you may slaughter in his place. And this is done. The pig boy burns, the child is spared, and from that time we offer up a pig boy to the fire upon the night. Now, of course, that is not what happened in the story that we read, right? Where <laughs> all of this was a trick of Hob and his son so that Hob wouldn't have to murder his son. And so uh, I have a few questions about this for you, Brandon. But the, the big one is just, how do you think this version of the story originated? Where does this version of the story start? Uh, that's a great question. I, I can't pinpoint exactly where it starts, but if we're following the logic of, I don't know, the Old Testament or something along those <laughs> lines, uh, the priests have got to eat, right? And they're not doing any labor. Uh, so this is a, a kind of sacrifice, a, a big feast for the village that um, a, probably a portion of it goes to the cunning man. And so at some point, uh, somebody realized they could maybe get people to sacrifice their food and uh, take a portion of it to eat. And the story changed kind of around that practice or that that class of people being in society. Right. I think at this point, we we have to take as a given that one of the themes of this entire book, because it's been in both chapters so far, is Moore's attitude that religion is more or less a scam. And yeah, that's yeah. definitely the tack that he's taking here, right? There is no actual sympathetic magic. Olin is you know, a con artist of, of a sort, he, although he does also seem to be providing actual services to the, the village, but he doesn't have the powers that he actually claims that he has. And that's definitely what we see in the first chapter as well with with Hob, right? Hob is the cunning man for this community, which is not a, a leadership position. He is not in charge of the village. It's not a village that is run by the cunning man, but it is a privileged position. Nonetheless, it's a position in which he has to do what the secular leadership of the village tells him to do. And the secular leadership is telling him that he has to sacrifice his son uh, because of something that they're about to do. They're, they're about to, uh, they've got some big undertaking that they're about to do, and they need a serious business sacrifice in order to ensure that it is going to go well. And Hob does not want to kill his child, right? As, as I think we all, we all understand. And so he comes up with a way to kill a boy without killing his own son. And so my feeling is that this this is the story Hob goes and tells everybody. It's like, look, you can see here that I sacrificed a person and that actually was a pig who turned into a person because the God showed up and spared my son. So I, I think this is part of the con of Hob. Like this is what happens after, at the end of that story. This is what happens, you know, on the next page after that one is Hob has to go to the village and explain what's actually what's actually happened. Yeah, Glenn, I think that's absolutely right. And that that's a much clearer uh way of thinking than I think uh, what I put forth about how a uh, priestly caste needs its stake. But um, yeah, I really, I really appreciate that uh, perspective. Well, I mean, I don't think you're wrong there. I mean, I think that certainly is a part, that's the con, right? That's what Moore is interested in here is how people are conning the village into giving them food for not really doing anything. <laughs> And, right. you know, it's a con that you have to keep going right over and over and over again. And uh, yeah, I do think 
expect, right, that we'll see this as we continue on in the book, that this is going to show up, maybe not in every story, but probably in most of them. I think this will be one of the through lines that Moore is exploring. Uh, But look, you brought up something else, Brandon, about this uh, story that we've got to talk about, right? Because, I mean, this is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Yeah, it really is. It's very strange. Uh, I I don't know whether or not Moore is saying that's a kind of universal story that one way of reading the the story of Abraham and Isaac is that God is essentially prohibiting human sacrifice uh, for his people or those brought into his culture. And if Moore is saying that at some point, every religious practice goes through a similar transition, it's universal from using human sacrifice to appease the gods or to manipulate them into giving what you want, getting what you want from them to a symbolic sacrifice that meets the same requirements. It's, uh, I don't know what Moore's saying here, but that's that's my guess. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. I think that that is an idea that Moore has. It certainly is an idea that comparative uh, anthropologists or, or people who do comparative religion have had before, right? Looking at uh, ancient religions and then also trying to suss out what we can from prehistoric religions through archaeology and art history and, and surmising that certainly not all. But many, if not most, human cultures actually go through some period of human sacrifice and then come out of that, and that we can find evidence of that in most world mythologies. I don't buy that at all, but this is certainly something that was uh, a commonly held view uh, in the 19th century, um, and actually even, I think, fairly deep into the 20th century, and certainly is the sort of um, thing that Alan Moore himself, I think, would be well-steeped in. Uh, people like uh, uh, James Fraser, for example, who wrote the, the Golden Bough, he doesn't quite make that claim, but makes some claims similar to that. And I think those are the sorts of things that uh, nerdy teenagers were getting in their libraries in the, you know, the Second half of the twentieth right. century, right. right? And so, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's what Moore is is playing with here. Um, and it's a it certainly is a fun idea and a creepy idea, right? And so, it's perfectly at home here in this weird fiction story. And it was certainly an element that I really, really loved. Yeah, me too. I, I really love how Moore takes his first story and reframes it in the second chapter of the this book, and it really kind of makes a promise to the reader that we're going to get a small reframing of this story in in the next chapter and I really hope that that's the case. Yeah, and I but you know by the end I don't know what that's going to mean, <laughs> you know, where we right. get sort of the callbacks <laughs> from uh, from every single story. Although, I don't know. I, I at this point I will say I'm I'm really interested in uh the narrative, maybe not even narrative, I'm just interested in kind of the structure of this book. What what more is going to be doing here? This is going to be one of the things I'm interested in 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 carrying on. But that is for carrying on. That's for later episodes. I still want to talk a little bit more about Olin and his religion before we move on to talking about Herna. And I, you know, I was invoking earlier what it is that uh, a cunning man or a village priest, uh, you know, does right in service for not having to do agricultural labor or other types of, of physical material labor in the community. And I wonder if we can suss out a little bit more, Brandon, about what actually it is that Olin does in the community. I mean, we do see him preside over this one ritual and he seems to have some knowledge, but it, you know, it's just not clear to me what his nine to five duties are. Do you have maybe a bigger sense of that or a better sense of that than I do? I I don't. I mean, he's the medical examiner, right? So we, 
we uh, uh, we talked about that a little bit in our recap episode. He's probably there to interpret signs and omens uh, of a sort and maybe also generate them. Um, so he's seen as kind of the wise man of the village, which is fine. People might go to him if there's an issue. But it seems as though the way Moore presents this character as though he's uh, more of a passive knower, right? So he'll say things like, uh, my teeth fall out when these two brothers are fighting with one another. But it's not clear that he's doing anything about the conflict or that it really matters that he knows that there's a conflict. It seems as though his primary job is to continue to impress people with what he knows and also maybe keep a, a museum of medical oddities as well. Yeah. I wondered if he actually has a role in the village as a type of healer. Uh, you know, if part of his knowledge is actually about you know plants that can have medicinal properties and that sort of thing. I, I do feel like his big job though really is actually to tend to the dead uh, I think right. that Moore is trying to show us here a society that you know doesn't merely practice inhumation, but that this is a culture that really venerates its dead, which certainly seems to be the case, right? When you go look at the uh, remains of these these barrows, these long barrows, and so on, I mean, it really seems like a lot of work and care went into uh, human bodies, into setting them up, arranging them, giving them a type of home to to occupy, and that Moore is envisioning that it's someone's job in the village to actively care for them in some way. Uh, he doesn't really spell that out, but there's a lot of of imagery, there's a lot of invocation of um, of the earth. Uh, you know, of dirt, of soil as being where the gods live and being really important to this culture uh, in a spiritual way, not just, a, you know, because that's where crops come out of and 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 so on. So I know that was kind of my sense of of the thing that he does and then presides over these rituals and so on. But you 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 touched on something there, Brandon, that leads into the other question that I have, because it feels to me like Olin, with his knowledge, all sorts of knowledge, even if much of it is knowledge he's making up and convincing people <laughs> is right, would would naturally then also become a kind of, of mediator in disputes and that sort of thing. But we don't actually see him do anything like that in the story. We don't get any hint that he does that. And I was really surprised to find that in this village, there is actually a secular leader, Queen Mag. This is the the queen with the twins as bodyguards. I, I I just wasn't really sure what her role is. What does she do in the village? I don't know. I I was thinking the same thing and wondering the same thing. I was uh, just thinking: Is Glenn going to ask me what this queen does next? <laughs> <laughs> of course, I <laughs> I'm going to say <laughs> I have no idea. She just sits and gets fat. I, that's really how Usen sees her, and that's also Usen's. Uh, I don't know aspirations. You know, to kind of be the queen of her own village and eat the choicest meats and wear all the jewelry and have her own little. I don't know lovers uh, to to have trysts with and things like that, uh, to be venerated on some level by the village people. But I, I was just thinking how, you know, if it's not Olin's job to mediate these sorts of disputes, it ha has to be the queen's job then, right? I mean, that that's what she would be doing. And then she's also the owner of the land. I mean, that, this is what I'm saying about the economy of the story really troubling me and, and kind of creating some friction with, with 
me as a reader is trying to understand all of the economies of this this world. My expectation, right? If someone just told me that we were going to have uh, the, the the cunning man and a and a, a, a the queen here, or you know, a type of spiritual leader and a type of secular leader in this village, my assumption would be that the secular leader would actually be primarily engaged in some kind of violence, right? Like military violence would be a war leader, a war chieftain of of some sort, uh, but then also maybe secondarily a judge, but then also it could be the, the spiritual leader who's being the judge. But we don't get any sense that Queen Mag here is in any way involved in war. War is not something that shows up in this story at all. There certainly is all sorts of violence done to other people. Um, the the torso garden is certainly an indicator that people have come to the village with with ill intentions, or at least, you know, the inhabitants have thought perhaps the intentions were ill. But it doesn't seem like that's a defeated army. It seems like these are people basically like Usin, uh, the narrator, right. right, who are wandering around and, and up to no good and get caught. They're criminals who are being punished, not uh, enemy armies that are being defeated in some way. There doesn't really seem to be any kind of defensive structures around the, the village or anything like that either, which to me was actually kind of surprising that more didn't uh, didn't go that route right so- because the the people on the gate are the old man with the tremors and like the young kid who's like uh, slacking off on his duty trying trying to get with all the village girls so they're not really that interested in defense as a as a village you know i i maybe they see the torso garden as a deterrent enough but they're not really using any kind of show of force. And so ultimately it's a pretty peaceful and well-run place. But I don't understand how that fits in with the rest of the the world that we learn about uh and how trade happens and why there are brothels and things like that. I'm very confused by 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 some of these things. Yeah, I, I am as well. But I think that we can suss some things out. But before we get into that, let's let's switch now to talking about Herna's religion. Again, I'll just talk about practices very briefly before we talk about beliefs, and then we can uh, kind of take stock of this. There are a few questions I've got about Herna's religion and what we see happening in the story. But you know, we see two practices here in. Uh, in the story. And and one of them is cremation, right? Uh, That we know that this is a religion that doesn't bury their dead. This is a religion that burns their dead. And then, of course, the story culminates in this ritual cremation of Olin in a bonfire atop a hill at night as a a type of religious service, a type of uh, funeral service. But then we also know that there are some sort of private worship services because Herna goes off to something like this. Um, It's not at all clear what those are like, what they're doing there. We don't know. But she goes off in in private to worship with other members of this religion. And and really, that's that's all we know about the practices there. But we get, I think, significantly more about the beliefs, though still not a lot. But we learn that a god, a singular god, swallows us and then rebirths us to live amongst the gods, plural. So it's a polytheistic religion, but it is uh, choosing sort of one... God out of these many to be particularly important and presumably worthy of special veneration in some way, though that's, you know, (laughs) there's an awful lot of contingency there, you know, basing that on sort of one (laughs) sentence in the story. Um, But let me read just a little bit of of, of text here. Uh, This is something that Herna says. She says, my people's way, we do not hold with gods who dwell below the earth and there receive the dead. Why, earth is but the lowest of the spirits. 
having wood and water, air and fire, all above it in their import. Earth is that which we must raise ourselves above, not put ourselves below. And so there's clearly some you know, theological idea here about why you shouldn't practice inhumation, why you should practice cremation, but also is really quite wrapped up in this idea of, you know, what is the bounty of the earth and and where does that come from? This is something that Moore has totally made up. We have no writing, you know, from this period of time. We can't access people's culture in this way, but this is pretty plausible, I think, and pretty interesting. What it's return what it's really drawing on is kind of the pre-Socratic philosophies around you know elemental religions or worships uh, of beliefs things like that and 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 what i got mostly from herna's religion and some of the kind of end of world end of era thoughts that usen has is that we are moving from the time of uh, like real agriculture uh, where people are thinking about harvests and bounties and stuff like that, they've got that under their belt, right? It's almost a progressive or like teleological view of history. And now the next thing that needs to happen is mastery of fire so that we can make uh, weapons or things out of ore and melt it. And so fire becomes the next thing to be worshipped. And I and then to me, that's what I, I saw more doing was kind of this uh, using the background of, of religious practice to show how the era is moving from one where the people are focused on what the earth gives them to what they can do with fire, uh, which, and then all the sort of, I don't know, philosophical musings around what fire does. It consumes, but then also that you can, ash can make really good soil, you know, at certain times, it's under certain conditions, uh, and just thinking along those lines. So that's what I saw more doing here with the, with the movement between, and the, and the difference between these two religions. Uh, that's all awesome. Uh, we're going to take that up a little bit later in the discussion because we're going to need to talk about fire as a motif here. I mean, yeah. like the book is called Voice of the Fire. We've had fire in both stories as well. And certainly we're seeing fire in both both religions here, right? I mean, the uh, Olin's religion is burning uh, a, an effigy of a, a, a pig or possibly an effigy of a person in lieu of a, a, a pig or something along those lines. And then we've got the cremation here too, right? So yeah, it's a book about fire. So we'll take that off. This is kind of the last discussion point that I've got. Before we leave Herna's religion behind though, I just want to think about this as a new religion, uh, but a new religion that's gaining followers. It's gaining adherence. And I, I wonder, Brandon, why you think it is spreading here. You know, why, why are more and more people joining this religion? They're leaving the old religion behind and joining this new religion. I think they're seeing the value of metallurgy and uh, that that's coming around, That's that the culture is shifting and they might feel they need a new god to worship. Though, as I said, I mean, agriculture remains to be very important. Like, it's... It's not like people change gods because they don't need wheat or grain anymore or animal husbandry, uh, things along those lines. So I, yeah, I'm not quite sure. I just think what Moore's intention is, is to really highlight the changing of the era to like a new age. 
Well, it's one last thing I want to talk about here on on this topic, Brandon. We we talked in the the recap about how the the narrator is atheistic, right? She's got this question about, you know, if there are gods ordering everything, why is there so much suffering? And she's come to the conclusion that actually both of these religions are nonsense, right? That there is just nothing after death. We aren't souls, we're just bodies, and we end up as worm food. But something that we left out of the, the recap is that the narrator also has this real apocalyptic sense of the world that I think it's just a, a beautiful paragraph, so I'm going to read that here, but I think also worth worth talking about. And here's what she says. This is the last age of the world, for we are come as far now as we may along our path from what is natural. We herd and pen the beast that's born to roam. In huts, we cling like snail shells to the fenland that is in our great father's way to stride across and then pass by. We cook the blood from out the earth and let it scab to crowns and daggers, pound our straight track through the crooked fields and trade with blackskins. Soon the oceans rise and take us. Soon the crashing of the stars. And so, you know, this is the narrator here thinking that the world is kind of insane because it is so far removed from the natural environment because instead of just hunting animals as they roam we're we're fencing them in and you know making them have babies and stuff we're building homes and dwelling there permanently and we're doing that in areas that previously we would have thought of as inhospitable we we've now developed metallurgy and we're also trading with people from so far away, so far away that they actually uh, have a different physical appearance than us. And there's no way that can continue. There's some kind of hubris here. Like we're you know, destroying the earth. We're not living the way that we're supposed to. And so soon the oceans are going to rise and take us and the stars are going to crash down, which is just some amazing weird fiction imagery there. But it's also, I think, really interesting just to think of from our perspective where, you know, like the order of magnitude <laughs> from, you know, <laughs> of which we are far from from this, from our natural environment, is so much more significant, right? To us, this culture looks primitive uh, and fright, frightfully primitive. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that somebody would have thoughts like this, right? And from like, I don't know, cutting down trees to thinking the, the oceans would rise, uh, I, yeah, I, I, uh, she'll be vindicated. I mean, I hope not, but it's looking like, uh, Usain is going to be vindicated for having these beliefs maybe in our lifetimes, maybe just a few <laughs> generations beyond us. But yeah, it's really interesting thinking about stars falling out of the sky as an apocalyptic omen about water rising as an apocalyptic omen. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure what to make of her sense of, of the end of things, other than to say that um, there, there's a kind of time of fire coming that she believes in, uh, because it started, her life really started with uh, a volcano destroying her village, and everything's kind of, and everything's kind of flown from that, uh, I don't know. Lava flow, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, it's a good, it's a good metaphor. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Hey, we we try. It's a, we're doing it live. <laughs> well, I, something I would like to kind of imagine about this is actually to think that maybe what does happen next is that the narrator 
decides to stick around in this village and try to make a go of being the cunning man. And now she starts like proselytizing this religion, this like apocalyptic religion that she has, where like, we've got to stop doing agriculture and metallurgy. We've just got to go back to, you know, hunting and gathering here. I don't think that's actually what Moore has in mind, but uh, I don't know. That's the spinoff story that I would write, I suppose, if I were taking this, this story as a prompt. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting to me that Gern is also a uh, an atheist, which to me really just like blows up my whole idea that Morris trying to highlight like the movement of the the ages or the epochs as we've kind of put them into periods uh, and and kind of show religion as a backdrop to that because Gern who actually works with metal is like yeah it's just or you know <laughs> fire so he doesn't really have a religious belief about what he's doing other than he likes the work, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go talk about metallurgy next. So when we did Hobbs Hogg, I, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or so I spent in that discussion episode just monologuing about Moore's envisioning of prehistoric Britain and how that compared with what archaeologists have learned. I mean, especially, you know, since the 90s when Moore was uh, writing this, this book. I'm going to do the same thing now. I don't think quite as long, but mostly it's going to be about metallurgy and funerary practices. So uh, I'm just going to maybe catalog some of the things that we see here in the the book. So uh, one of the first things that we're told is that up north, past the Great North Woods, and that's in caps, it's a proper noun, people are smelting and and casting copper on the beach. And of course, Usin's blue beads are a byproduct of that. They're a mix of burned seaweed and sand and runoff copper, which is a beautiful description of how that works. And then we yeah, get all this business with Garn, who thinks that metallurgy is a, a craft that is more fitted to this time. It's a, a new technology that he's embracing, and he's rejecting the old and secret ways of his father. Uh, and he actually makes a really great speech about that. He says, My way of seeing is not the same as his, nor is it to be put aside that his old way endures. My forge, my fire, my knowledge of the favoring heats and tempers, these are things to fit the world that we have now. His dowsing and his chanting have no use to me. This hill's the place for me. It has a feel about it that is right for furnaces, and fire sits well here. Right, so that's that's where Garn is at. That's what Garn is thinking about uh, about this world, about metallurgy, and. The first story in this book was set at a moment of massive change, uh, you know, change that's slow by our standards, but nonetheless massive. But that change was the beginning of farming in Britain, which marks the transition from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic, which is to say the Middle Stone Age to the New Stone Age. And that story was set in 4000 BC. But now we're 1500 years later, we're at 2500 BC, which is the very, very, very beginning of another transition transition, now the transition to the the Bronze Age. And of course, Bronze Age is exactly what it says on the box. It's people are smelting bronze and doing things with it, making things out of it. And you invoked Bronze Age in the, the recap, Brandon, though that's not actually quite right here. We don't see bronze. What we see is copper. Uh, bronze is an alloy that includes copper, but also includes tin. And we don't actually get bronze smelting in Britain until after 2200 BC, so three centuries after this story is set. But smelting copper, that's new to Britain right around this time. And it's something that is usually associated with what's called the beaker culture, which is named after a type of pottery. Uh, it's a type of pottery that looks like 
like beakers, right? So again, does what it says <laughs> on the box there. And of course, as always, there is an argument about whether this new type of pottery and, and this new technology means that new people have arrived, new people have shown up in uh, Britain here, or if it simply means that indigenous people have adopted new ways. And I should say as well that this beaker culture, this is something that is all over Europe and then is a pretty late arrival, actually, in Britain. And something else that comes with the beaker culture is inhumation, which is to say the practice of burying dead people. Because from around 3000 BC up until the spread of the beaker culture around this time, around 2500 BC, Britons largely actually cremated their dead. And so one of the big things that Moore has done here in this story is actually to reverse that. He has, creme- he has cremation as the hip new religion, when in fact it would actually be the other way around. The cremation is the thing, that would be the old school religion of Olin, and it would be Herna who would be practicing inhumation and preaching that we should be burying you know, people in the earth. He's also clearly got this story set about a century too early, just in terms of how widespread metallurgy is at this point. And I also think that Moore envisions this happening much more quickly than it really did. And really, you know, Moore here is envisioning this society in a state of religious and technological change. And I think this is where, Brandon, we can zoom back out uh, or maybe shift back over to the story and some of the things that Moore is showing us, some things that you've brought up already, because... Moore is really envisioning this this transition, this religious change, and especially the technological change, as something akin to the Industrial Revolution of the late 18th and early and mid-19th century, where people are gathering together into larger communities in order to, facil- in order to facilitate mining and metalworking. And something that's crucial to this story is that a poor, displaced woman that's Uh, the narrator's mother, can only resort to prostituting herself at mine camps in order to survive. And then her daughter, the narrator, does some of that as well. But she's essentially a clever street urchin, right? I mean, there's a real sense in which Alan Moore is writing a Charles Dickens story. He's just setting it in the, you know, the copper age, right? Right, right. Yeah, this story, I mean, this story is full of tropes from all over kind of 19th and 20th century fiction. Anyway, you have the high story, the one last job trope, and then you have all this 19th century stuff. I'm really glad you brought up the connection to, I don't know, the way we feel maybe about, the way we feel when we read stories about or from the period of the the Industrial Revolution that are about societies in transition. And I think that that's something that just just again, for me, creates friction as a reader because this is, you know, even if the population did explode at this period, there's still a real connection to the immediacy of food and and the availability of food, of farming, of husbandry, of where your resources come from. Everybody knows um, the discovery of ore and the ability to shape it, I don't think cre- is the, a keen to a technological revolution in the way we think about uh, the industrial revolution and the technological revolution that we're, we're going through, the computer revolution. So, I mean, it's just, it, it feels like it should take place in a different time, more story does. And this woman roaming around without anybody, when there are clearly, you know, bandits and robbers and stuff on the road, there's a lot that just doesn't quite ring true. Uh, to me about this story. But I think Moore is going, 
is using tropes that we're really familiar with as 20th century and 21st century readers, but this was written in the late 20th century, um, in order to get us to encounter a major technological revolution in the deep past. Right. I, I think something that doesn't ring true here for this experience is yeah this 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 street urchinness here of the the narrator right that one that she would survive in this situation seems a little preposterous i mean survive in the way that you know in the situation that moore is envisioning here seems a little bit preposterous but i i have to think too that that in this period that there would be recourse for someone in this position, that you can show up at a village and say, I have nothing, I'm, you know, I, I don't have any material goods, but I am in need of a place in a society such that I can eat and have shelter and, you know, protection from violence and so on, and actually find a place, right? That there's going to be someone in the village who's looking for a wife, uh, and that this is a society in which most labor is done by people. It's done by human hands and arms and feet, right? And that another body is a is a boon, right? This isn't a society in which uh, there are too many mouths to feed. This is a society in which most babies that are born don't survive. And it, it's great to have more people, that we're trying to have more people, right? And so you know, more really is envisioning the 19th century when maybe there are too many mouths to feed, at least from the perspective of, you know, wealthy businessmen who don't want to right. pay for people and want to pay people as little as possible and exploit people economically in this way. I, I think there would be a lot more cooperation in the society than more is is envisioning. And I think most anthropologists agree with that, at least, you know, right now that that might, uh, that pendulum might swing the other way at some point in the future. But I think most anthropologists right now really look at uh, prehistoric humans as being fundamentally cooperative uh, in this way. Right, exactly. And 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 that that's also present in this story. As we talked about this uh, this bridge in the valley, this village where the guards are the, the, the old, very older, the very young. Um, there are these signs that there's not really a lot of violence or much to worry about in in the shelter of the village. Not even threats from outsiders. That that's kind of a cooperative life. Yeah, sure, brothers feud, but you know, in what culture do, do you not have stories of brothers feuding? So you know, it's just it's it's uh, it's a strange dissonance that I encountered in reading this story, kind of for all these reasons that we're, that we're repeating as we continue this discussion. Yeah, though, I mean, it was a strange dissonance, that's for sure. But I actually, I thought it was actually also very clever. Like, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm being absolutely. nitpicky, but I, I'm not trying to take more to task here for this. I mean, I think, actually, this story breathes a lot of imagination and a lot of life into something that people can go see, uh, you know, out at these digs and in museums or, you know, read about in, in textbooks and that sort of thing in school, that this is a story that I think actually breathes a lot of life into it. And certainly, uh, if I'd read this story as an adolescent, I mean, I would have felt like my mind was blown, right? Like the idea that you could really envision, uh, you know, past societies this way, uh, you, know, you know, which is much of my training, you know, in, in, in pursuing a PhD in, in you know, pre-modern history. But it's not something I think that when I was younger, I would have really quite 
thought of. And I think Moore is doing actually a real service here with that story. And it's uh, it's pretty brilliant. Right. And also his ability to to use familiar tropes to draw you into the story so that so that he can explore these ideas in a deeper way is really it's really a stroke of genius, I think. Whether whether or not you and I as jaded readers uh, <laughs> found found some friction in, in our right. own experience reading it. <laughs> All right. Well let's uh let's hit the last thing here, Brandon. You brought up earlier that hey fire, it's a it's a motif in this story. And motif in this book, right? And in this story in particular, we get the three types of fire. We get the pig burning fire, we get the cremation fire, and we get the metallurgy fires. Though you also added to that list, Brandon, I think very sharply that, you know, there's like some kind of volcano or something as well. So there's <laughs> other type of, of fire. That's clearly, you know, uh, a motif for the book and that we're seeing from chapter to chapter. And so I just thought it might be fun, Brandon, to kind of leave off this story by looking at the title of the next one uh, and speculating about how, the way in which fire might show up. And actually, this next story is, I think, the biggest jump in time that we're going to make at all in the book, where we're going to go from 2500 BC to sometime after AD 43 in one leap. Uh, AD 43 is the Roman conquest of Britain. So like sometime after that, maybe it's 100 AD. Uh, not, not clear, but a pretty big jump. And the story is called In the Drownings. And so, I don't know, just based on those things, Brandon, what kind of guess do you have about how fire is going to show up in that that world? I have no guess, Glenn. I know nothing about history. I don't know what drownings are. I'm really lost here. I don't is it I mean maybe uh I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. This is your this is your uh Bialywick here, Glenn. You got to yeah. tell me what your guess is. <laughs> well, I don't have much of a guess here either. I mean, you're right. I mean, my training is as a, a a Roman, especially late Roman and early medieval historian. This is my jam here. I'm very excited to get to this story. But, you know, I think that the dr- drownings here, it's in the drownings, right? And so I think the drownings is probably a place that's certainly the way that we've seen more using language. I mean, you talked about, you know, the the way in which uh, the narrator here in this story has kind of a big uh, a bit of observation comedy about naming practices, and I think that's continuing here. So Drownings presumably is some place that's near Northampton here, maybe something to do with what's going on with the river, which we've also seen to be important uh in both stories, right? So... You know, the the only thing that then comes to mind is that, you know, water is kind of the antithesis of fire. And so perhaps we will also see some kind of uh, religious change here that that presumably this is going to be a story then about Romans coming to Britain, bringing their culture there. That There's going to be, again, some kind of um, cultural change, some moment of flux, maybe some moment of conflict there that's going to involve, uh, you know, this place called the Drownings and fire that will probably be wrapped up in religion. But I know that's, the you know, about as nonspecific a prediction as one can have. <laughs> I thought you were looking for something more specific than that. <laughs> well, I was, but I don't have anything either. So I don't know. The game was maybe less fun and useful than I was hoping it would be. <laughs> I mean, Okay, so here we can say probably it's going to take place in the same general geographic location. That's pretty much what we can say. The Romans might be involved. They almost certainly will. Fire will probably be involved. Uh, Hopefully nobody else will be burned. But that's a motif as well, or at least a repeated image. I guess that's what a motif is. So yeah, maybe somebody will get burned near the river. I mean, that's kind of my thinking too. I guess what puzzles me about that is that Romans don't really have, uh, a, you know, like a big fire god or a big water god that they really 
care about all that much. It's certainly not part of like the state religion, and it's not part of the religious rituals of the military, uh, presumably, I, although I don't actually know if Northampton uh, had a Roman army base there. It may have, and certainly I will know that by the time that we cover that <laughs> next story. But anyway, yeah, I was having a hard time kind of pinpointing what I thought that might be. But uh, yeah, I guess that's a, a good note, a, a sort of failure of a discussion topic. There's a good <laughs> note in which to wrap this episode up. So that is going to do it for now. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. As always, you can find us and all of our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. So we're going to be taking a bit of parental leave next time, but we are very fortunate to have a commissioned episode that we're going to be able to slot in that place instead, so there won't be any gap in coverage here. And what we're going to be releasing that week is just a really awesome, really excellent story. It's The Lady of the House of Love by Angela Carter. And then after that, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled episode on the next installment in The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. That's going to be exciting. We're uh, we're nearing the completion of that book, which is very, very cool. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>